You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning and welcome to David's Pick on America's Web Radio. And I decided, uh, since I am a cowboy of sorts, Clodbuster's more like it, that I'd play a little... uh, little music that we all appreciate from the past. So anyway, we're glad to have you listening, and this is going to be a very special show. Uh, I want to thank Colonel Rick White, retired Colonel White, um, for lining us up with what I think is uh, these guys have just are, are incredible, and since I was a little kid, I followed the Blue Angels, and we have Captain Retired, Donnie Cochran on the line with us this morning, and he was a commander of the Blue Angels, as a matter of fact, and uh, he's done just a little bit of everything, I guess, in the military at one time or the other, but or not in, in the military, but in the Navy, and uh, I believe yesterday when we were talking, uh, Captain Cochran, you said that you had had uh, 800 postage stamp landings, is that correct? <laughs> Uh, that is correct. I have uh, 888 to be exact. But who's counting? Uh, that's exactly correct. <laughs> and I, I got to tell you, about a third of them were at night, and uh, I got those landing at night are always uh, the ones that are uh, the most challenging and require the most focus and determination to get back aboard. Well, I, I tell you, you know, when I was flying, um, or when I was taking lessons anyway, uh, like my instructor said, you know, any any landing you walk away from is a good one, and the definition of a, a plane landing is a controlled crash, and I don't know what it is, uh, in my opinion, a plane landing on a postage stamp, better known as an aircraft carrier, is a landing by a nut, and, you know, I, w- I mean, the thought of doing something like that, and, and let me ask, and, and there are a lot of questions, I'm sure our listeners, uh, they may be, they can uh, certainly listen to us live on Facebook if they want to make a comment, they can send a comment in, and uh, we'll get it and ask the question, but I can't imagine landing on an aircraft carrier and and even the it's sort of like jumping out of a good plane i don't want to jump out of a perfectly good plane and why would i want to land on a postage stamp well i i gotta tell you dave first of all uh let me say that i'm i'm very very glad to be here and by the way that's the title of my book glad to be here and that phrase is a an expression of gratitude for the journey that allowed you to get to where you are, and the determination and effort that it require you to stay there. So I am truly glad to be here discussing with you, which is in line with my next chapter in life, which is sharing the unique aspects of what I, what I had a chance and what many other had a chance to do, being a part of the United States Navy aviation team, as well as the Blue Angel teams. Uh, but to get back to your question about what it took to, to, to get aboard an aircraft carrier, the focus required, well, the first thing, it doesn't happen overnight. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> no. Uh, it, is a, it is a process that you go through and training that, uh, that, number one, 
help you gain the confidence that you can do it. Number two, the required skills required to go out and do it safely and consistently. Uh, that is the key is, uh, you know, if, if you want to go out there and try it one time, uh, yeah, you might be lucky and, and, and be successful, but if you want to be consistently able to go and perform in very demanding conditions, then you have to have a certain experience level training and confidence behind you to make that consistently. And the way the Navy Marine Corps team trains, it prepares you well for those challenges to meet and exceed those challenges. Uh, Donnie, has, has the simulator helped in that aspect? Uh, absolutely. Uh, uh, one one quick story on the simulators. Uh, it, almost every aircraft that I flew in the Navy, I had simulator experience prior to actually flying the airplane. Uh, number one, the, the simulators are so good today with the uh, I mean level D type training where it simulates the environment you're actually flying in. The visuals are almost exactly what you would see in the real world. Uh, so the training helps keep the cost down and to allow you to do it safely before you get in a real airplane, real expensive aircraft that it takes to operate. You know, the, the cost of aircraft are hundreds of millions of dollars. So when you ha- entrust that tool to a pilot today, you want to make sure that uh, he is, number one, well trained, he or she is well trained be able to go out and safely operate and employ the aircraft as a weapon system uh, that it may be designed to, to be utilized as. So the simulators are vitally important to uh, achieving the level of expertise prior to actually touching the real airplane. Did you ever did you ever have an experience where you were coming into a carrier and and it was uh, it was like deja vu all over again because of the simulation? Well, um, I, I, I got to tell you, the, now, the newer simulators are much better than the ones I had. Uh, but I can tell you the F-14 simulator that I had a chance to fly, and that's the aircraft they have most of my experience in, uh, it was not quite at the level that will allow you to. In other words, it was a lot more, if you could land it in the simulator, you could certainly do it in the real airplane because it was it was. The, the visuals were lagging what the aircraft was actually doing. And so when you were trying, you you ended up playing sort of a game with the simulator, which you can't really do in the airplane. You have to react to and, uh, and anticipate what the real conditions are telling you in order to safely land the aircraft on board. So to, to answer your question, yes, there have been times where the simulator uh, reminded me when I was in the air of the real deal, uh, especially when it's extremely dark at night, where the only visual references you have is your instruments in the airplane and the little lights that you may see on the carrier. And so, uh, Way that, off in the horizon. Uh, that's, that's exactly correct. Now, there are times when the weather is such that uh, as you're making your approach, you will not see the ship until, you know, several seconds before you break out and, and land the aircraft. Mm. Very rarely does that happen, but it does happen, and that's when you have to be on your A-game to make sure you safely get aboard the ship. Just talking about it, it uh, makes one uh, 
or makes me nervous anyway. I, I can't address other folks, but uh, I just, uh, is there anything, would you always prefer a day landing as a night land, as to a night landing? Well, it's, it's a lot of the, the combat operations are conducted at night. So you have to get very comfortable flying the airplane in the night environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but naval aviation has been around for, you know, uh, well over, well, uh, almost 100 years. Uh, and I can tell you, maybe over 100 years, I have to check. But the bottom line is, over the years, we've learned what it takes to safely uh, operate and to be proficient in current. So the way it works is if you have not flown a night landing in seven days, you have to go in the daytime before you go at night. And huh. the reason for that is it's a, a proficiency thing. And uh, not necessarily currency. You could be flying all, you know, for several days, weeks. But if you haven't flown at night, you, you know, that that is the proficiency part that you have to have linked up with your currency in order to consistently go out and land the aircraft safely. Uh, so you always want to make sure that you were, um, uh, let's say, proficient. But to get answer your question, yeah, you would love to be able to go out and fly mostly day. However, to get the full appreciation for flying in naval aviation, you certainly have to fly at night. Mm. And uh, now we have this phrase called pinky recoveries and command the moon. And what that means is, Uh, A pinky recovery is just before sunset. It's like twilight. And uh, you still have a little light left that you have a horizon, and it counts as a night landing. (laughs) So a lot of people love to fly at at those those times, that twilight time, just before sunrise or sunset is a good time to get out. Now, the other time is when you have a full moon, I can tell you, Navy pilots all over the world are enjoying it because it it provides that little bit of light that gives you a horizon and able to, uh, you know, it's, it's almost as good as flying in daytime, but not quite. It's always a challenge to fly at night. Okay, and I'm going to back up a little bit on this interview and in that, uh, who are we talking to? We're talking to... Captain Donnie Lee Cochran, who was a commanding officer, CEO of the Blue Angels, and um, obviously a veteran, also uh, is a is an inductee. Uh, was inducted into the Georgia Military Hall of Fame back in uh, 2016, or he was in the class of uh, 2016, and uh, he has. What have you not flown as far as uh, jets go? Um, well, I've, I've, I've flown a variety of... Uh, in, now, in the military or in the Navy, I flew mostly tactical airplanes. I mean, it uh, the, started off in the T-28, which was the basic prop train plane, the, T, uh, the T-2 Buckeye, which was a basic trainer, jet trainer, the TA-4, which was uh, the advanced uh, jet trainer. All of these aircraft have been since retired. And uh, and then I went from there to the F-A Crusader, which was a single-engine, um, high-performance 
fighter that was converted to a a uh, reconnaissance airplane. Hmm. Uh, and then I went to the uh, F-14 uh, as a uh, fighter pilot. Uh, also, we had a, a reconnaissance pod uh, that was took over the mission from the F-18. I mean, from the F-8. And then eventually, I had a chance to fly the F-18. The F-18. My experience in F-18 was from the Blue Angels. Uh, now, I, I, one thing you said, I, I was the commanding officer of the Blue Angels for about 18 months, uh, from 96, most, no, 95, most of 96. And then I, uh, prior to that, though, I had uh, three years on the team as a demonstration pilot. So I, I, I was very fortunate to be selected uh, in 1985 for the 86, 87, and 88 seasons. In 86, we were flying the A-4 Skyhawk. In 1987, the team transitioned to the F-18 to accommodate the transition and an air show in the same season. We flew, uh, we froze the team. In other words, uh, the Diamond pilots were frozen in place, which meant we got an extra year. <laughs> Somebody wow. had to do it, broke my heart, but I, I was happy to accommodate that. Uh, so the second year I flew in 87, the first year of the F-18 in 1988, my last year as a demo pilot, I flew to number four position. So I flew three for two years, four for one year, and one for 18 months. So out of the six flying positions, I had a chance to fly three of them. And uh, wow. as a result of that, uh, you know, I learned some really unique things about my own limitations and strength. I learned some things about leadership and team building and, and uh, uh, accommodation, you know, self-accommodation or uh, accountability, I should say. Um, all of those great qualities that make up a great organization, you learn in that test case, that very pressure-cooked environment, you learn so much about yourself and others. And uh, so that's essentially what my next chapter is about. But to get back to your other question, what aircraft I haven't flown well, after I left the Navy, I, I went, uh, I got out, and I worked for UPS, and I was uh, hired on as a flight engineer. I flew the DC-8 as a flight engineer, and uh, then I went from there to a 727 uh, engineer and then I went into the management and became a captain on a 727. And from there, I went to Coca-Cola, had an opportunity to fly a G5, uh, I think it was a, a G5. And um, and I got, got simulator trained in the G550. And that's the extent of, of my uh, aviation experience. Wow. We're going to take a quick break here, Donnie, and uh, we'll be back with you in about... Two minutes, and you're listening okay. to America's Web Radio. We've got Captain Donnie Lee Cochran on. Uh, experience and um, flying with the Blue Angels. And when I when we come back, I want to talk about uh, my experience with the Blue Angels. And uh, these guys are some of the nicest folks I think you'll ever meet. And I'm sure Donnie will say the same thing. We'll be back on America's Web Radio right after this. Your auto love and investment demands the best, and for 45 years, Passport Transport has been meeting those demands. From manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby. 
the first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind. Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And we're back on David's Pick, and we have... Retired Captain Donnie Lee Cochran on the line with us today, and uh, Donnie was one of the Blue Angels and uh, did his did his thing with the Blue Angels, and then also uh, I believe you were in Iraq as well. Donnie, is that? Well, uh, let's put it this way: uh, I was uh, flying the F fourteen in nineteen ninety two and ninety three. And this was in between the first Gulf, Gulf War and the second one. And uh, But what we had a chance to do was we had a chance to fly the uh, no-fly zone. When it was in force before the second uh, Gulf War, mm-hmm. we were flying the uh, F-14 to enforce those no-fly zones over southern Iraq. And so that's the extent of the exposure to a potential hostile environment that I had. Uh, during the Gulf, Gulf War, I was actually in Air War College in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, going through Air War College. Oh. And uh, it, it was a, a relatively short war, so uh, the only thing that we had a chance to do was to go and actually fly the no-fly zone, and that was in 92 and 93. Okay, and uh, what I started to mention earlier is the NF. If and correct me if I'm wrong, because I, I certainly I don't keep up with it like maybe I should or maybe I shouldn't. But anyway, we had the opportunity. We were in Pensacola and uh, just doing some vacation time, and somebody said, "Well, you know, you ought to." Uh, during the day, look up and you'll see the Blue Angels. Or if you want to go out to so-and-so field, you can go out and watch them as they're practicing, uh, getting ready to go into their season. And that was, I, you know, both sons and uh, and my wife and I, We it was so enjoyable. It was just absolutely a thrill to watch and and. Uh, you know, you just you're standing there with your with your head cocked back, watching you guys. And uh, uh, and what's uh, what's the uh, what is it? Was it a C one thirty that? Uh, yes. Okay. We call it uh, uh, Fat Albert. It's the C one thirty transport, and that that uh, that is the team primary support aircraft, and it is used to fly the maintenance team as well as the support requirements to the various air show sites. Uh, There are some airfields that that may not have the level of support that the team needs, and if that's the case, they will bring in certain uh, support items to to make sure that they have what they need to operate effectively. 
but you mentioned the, the practices over um, over NAS Pensacola. The team practices uh, probably three to four times a week. Um, uh, in fact, the only no-fly day typically is a Monday. That is a, a, a day that uh, if we do a, a week weekend show and return to Pensacola, well, Monday is a day off, the time to sort of do expense reports and, you know, catch up on any correspondence you need to do, administrative tasks. Tuesday, you normally have a practice. And there is an airfield located uh, about 40 miles from Pensacola that the team typically go and fly and do practice shows. Wednesday, they will have typically a practice show over Naval Air Station, Pensacola. And it may be twice a month. I'm not sure how many times they do it now. Uh, but uh, you would do a practice over the field, which is, you know, realistic. It's, it's the best type of uh, training you can get. And then on Thursday, the team will transition or fly to the new air show site. When they arrive, they will do circle and arrival type maneuvers, picking up checkpoints. And then they will actually do a second flight, which is the... Uh, the fly practice show there. Friday morning, the team would go to a uh, either a school. A school is in session. If it's not, it could be a community center, a hospital, and, and just make good ambassador-type visit to the community in which we fly. And then on Saturday and Sunday, you have your air show. Wow. Uh, and that's a typical week for the team. It's a very grueling schedule. Uh, but in the, in January or December of the year prior to your the, the air show, you sort of know what your schedule is going to be, and uh, they they built in some more downtime so that the team is is, is not uh, burning themselves out with uh, a grueling schedule. Uh, but it's a it's a wonderful way of representing the armed forces of the U.S. of the United States military. Because a lot of places you go, uh, you represent all branches of service, not just the Navy and Marine Corps, but all branches. And it is a, a great opportunity to showcase how well uh, your military, your tax dollars are being spent. And so I, I always think it's a wonderful way, especially at the military airfields where normally there's no fee to, play, to come in. And even if there is, it's normally a charity type event. Uh, but it's a great way of seeing what your military uh, training is uh, about to stay in touch with the military. Uh, and that's probably the reason why you won't have a military that would try to take over the country because it is it represents basically the, the, the people within the country, in the country. And it's a great thing. When, when did you decide you wanted to... Uh, join the Blue Angels or, or go try, I guess you try out for it or you how, how, I'm too old and too scared so I couldn't do it anyway but uh, some uh, grandparent that's listening and, and his grandson wants to uh, fly and wants to uh, become a part of the Blue Angels or, or one of the uh, other teams how do you do it? Well uh for me, uh, I was sort of a late bloomer, you might say. In, in other words, I didn't have an opportunity to see the Blue Angels until much later in my in my life. So I, I was not exposed to them at a, at a very early age. What I was exposed to at an early age was naval aviation. Uh, 
Uh, I grew up on a farm in Pelham, Georgia, and on this farm they had, uh, let's say, I think nav- uh, navigation routes because I used to see uh, Navy airplanes, Air Force, and Air Army aircraft, Marine, all flying low, fast, and that inspired me to pursue aviation. Uh, after I got my wings, I went to Naval Air Station uh, Miramar, and the Blue Angels had an air show at Miramar, hmm. and that inspired me. Uh, that that one air show inspired me to 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 pursue that potential opportunity to be a part of that very special organization. And uh, so, but but how do you do it? You certainly have to have a a, a desire and an aspiration to to, to fly. Uh, and then there is a journey associated with with getting to a point where you can actually apply or qualify for it. And uh, and but if it's a dream you have, I I'm the I'll be the first person to tell you to pursue your dreams because I was very fortunate to be selected twice with the Blue Angels, and that's just like lightning striking the same spot twice. It very rarely happens. Uh, so, uh, but but like I said, it was a journey and it was a, a process, and and, uh, and recognizing opportunities when they present themselves. Uh, for myself, I applied twice the first time, and I was not selected the first time. And I I feel well, you know, well, but, you know, that defensive mechanism kick in. I was like, well, I'm a little disappointed, but you know. And then I almost had decided that I was not going to reply the second time, but I got a, a, a let's say, um, an idea that I was I, I could be a part of it. In other words, uh, you have these intuitions that all of us have, and mine was stimulated by uh, a conversation between my department head when I was flying uh, and be up to 13 and the boss of the Blue Angel they were talking about the selection from the last year where I was not selected and they mentioned that hey my timing was off and that I should reconsider and the minute I heard that I, I immediately called the applicant officer and asked him what I needed to do to uh, be an active applicant for the 20 for the uh, 1980-16, and this is 1985. And of course, I, you, it, when you get those uh, intuition, you have to act on them. You can't just sit back and cross your fingers and hope things happen. You have to be very proactive about pursuing and intentional about pursuing your dream and doing the things necessary to build a positive uh, uh, reputation, being very good at what you do, uh, having a great attitude, uh, developing great interpersonal skills so you can talk to people and communicate with people that may not necessarily uh, be like you. All of those type of skills were part of the process of, of getting you to that that point where you have a chance to apply. And then after that, you know, it's, it's, it's some of it is a little luck, and some of it is is your your ability to bring uh, the the values and qualities that that team, that particular team, is looking for that year. 
Incredible. I uh, was watching uh, a special on the Blue Angels, um, and the amount of training that you all do, like you like you kept saying, the team, the team, and even to the point that the leader that's calling the balls and strikes at 3,000 feet or 2,000 feet or 500 feet, that you all train together so much that the other members can... You know, it's uh, they get so used to your voice and the way you will say something that um, they know. You know, it's just a voice recognition of what's about to happen. Uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, the way you're able to fly uh, 36 inches wing tip the canopy is you basically have to anticipate what is going to happen in order to stay synchronized with the leader. And, and, you know, having flown for three years as a wingman, uh, I was fortunate to have the same flight leader uh, all through those years. But what was really neat was the consistency in which uh, the leader uh, had to communicate over the radios um, and the energy required, the positive energy. That's what I talk about a lot, and that is not only do you have to be consistent with your voice, but is there a uplifting emotional tone with it uh, that can that can enhance the performance of the individual, particularly when there is challenges going on, when, when it's very challenging and rough conditions, having that that confident, uh, energized voice give that energy to keep you know, ahead of the aircraft so that you can anticipate what you need to do. So you're right, as flight leader, you, you always, in fact, uh, I still remember some of those 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 calls that I had to make as flight leader. And uh, let's say if you were going left, you would say coming left, and then you would, you're coming left, at the end of left, you move. A little pull, the P and pull, you actually start pulling back on the aircraft, adding Power, the PM power, you start adding power on the aircraft. And you had to be consistent with that so that everybody can uh, anticipate and stay synchronized with the leader. Just uh, incredible. But, yeah, let me share this part. You mentioned um, uh, one of the most critical aspects of building an effective organization or team is feedback is the, and we call it debrief. And after every air show, you had a debrief. Mm-hmm. And you would go into the debrief and uh, you would have to be honest about your your assessment of your performance. And if you were like four or five, then you end the maintenance. The, the people that actually critique the air show was the flight surgeon and the maintenance officer. <laughs> so, you know, they were non-aviators, but they were the ones that critiqued uh, how well the maneuvers went. And they were they were talking about maneuvers. They didn't talk about necessarily individuals, but they were talking about maneuvers. The maneuver was 300 feet uh, left of center point. There, there was curl and number three performance. You know, that's the type of feedback that they gave you and it enabled you to, number one, continue to be a proficient and, and pursue that per- perfect air show that the team has never flown. 
and it helped you to keep the show safe as well. But the debrief was incredibly important for sustainable high performance. And what was interesting was when I first, as a new pilot, you're always getting your fair, more than your fair share of feedback. <laughs> and so uh, what, I, what I had to develop was I had to develop a, a mentality of, well, how can I consistently go in, I mean, six days a week and getting that kind of feedback, if it was not good, it could beat you up. So I had to develop a mentality about, well, how do I do that? So the first thing I did was I said to myself, I said, uh, it was important for me to accept all feedback and criticism without taking it personally. Because if you let it get to you, then you would become your own worst enemy. So the, the next thing you learn is sometimes your feedback comes camouflage with resentment and hurt feelings and a whole bunch of garbage. Your task is to discard all of that stuff and choose those those golden nuggets that apply to you and take ownership for those gaps that you have to improve your performance. And, and the last thing I learned was, was sometimes your feedback is not credible. You know, like the internet sometimes. <laughs> but anyway, uh, you, you have to just learn to discard that and just keep focus on taking ownership of those things that you know you have to do. And, uh, and and it's those type lessons learned. I mean, keep in mind, I had almost five years of that. And in order to be able to, to sustain yourself, um, and because a lot of it could be good, a lot of it is going to be, hey, areas where you need to improve some gaps. And uh, and so I learned those those type type techniques. Donna, we're going to have to stop there for a minute and take a break. We'll be back with Captain Donnie Lee Cochran from Pelham, Georgia, and that's why he's a good Georgia boy, and that's uh, how he got in the Georgia Hall of Fame. And we'll talk a little bit about that and what that meant to him right after this. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. If your health insurance premium is more than your mortgage, Ellen Deal with Ideal Solutions is here to help. Whether you're a small business owner, individual family, or baby boomer, email MAGA45CAG at gmail.com, and I'll respond with three easy questions to help you determine if you can get away from Obamacare. As a 20-year veteran of the insurance industry, I'm here to help with all your insurance needs. Email Ellen Deal at MAGA45CAG at gmail.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And we're back on David's Pick on America's Web Radio, and we certainly appreciate you listening. And want to throw this out, we, how much we appreciate the veterans, and uh, want to tip my hat and, and thank over and over again Rick White, Colonel Rick White, that's... Uh, Heads up the uh, Georgia Military Hall of Fame, and if you haven't gone to it, 
please take the time to look it up and go to it. And if you can afford it, uh, send them a little contribution. We're going to be starting a program here in uh, at the radio station very shortly. And uh, we're going to donate half of our proceeds uh from this to uh, the Georgia Hall of uh, Military Hall of Fame, and uh, uh, even Colonel White, I haven't talked to him about it yet, but we're going to do it and uh, look forward to uh, being able to uh, contribute to it. And uh, our guest today, Captain Cochran, was inducted into the Georgia Military Hall of Fame. Being a Georgian, I think that's one of the main qualifications: is being a Georgian. And then outstanding service and uh, valor and on and on. And uh, uh, Captain Cochran, uh, just to think of flying it, how many knots? And and I used to be able to do it in my head, but I can't do it anymore. Uh, tra- uh, taking knots and turning them into miles per hour. How, how well, well there, there is this one maneuver that we flew called double formal. And the double farver was uh, where number one and number four fly upside down. Mm-hmm. And, and cross number, each other. Uh, well, actually, we were flying. Uh, number four is flying formation off of one uh, as we're flying. It's a four-plane formation, and it's demonstrating the skills of, uh, uh, of the diamond formation. Uh, but... Uh, you were talking about knots. We flew this maneuver at 380 knots, which is equivalent to 437 miles per hour. So mm. it takes about, I think it's about 1.3 miles per hour for every knot. So in other words, knots are, are slower in terms of, it's a lower number. They're the same speed, but a lower number. In other words, it takes more miles per hour to make a, a, a knot. So one point three somewhere around there um uh miles per hour for every knot so 380 knots is equivalent to 437 miles per hour mm-hmm. and that's that, that's <laughs> one way to look at it and uh, but you were you were asking well how fast do we typically fly maneuvers well for the six and four plane formation you normally won't see more than about 380 knots. Certain maneuver, you'll see 400 knots. Now, number five and six, they will demonstrate the maximum uh, capability of the aircraft. So they could be up 600 knots. Plus, the, the limitation for them is to stay below supersonic. And so, uh, but, but for the diamond formation, since it's precision flying, we don't necessarily have to show the the real aggressive speeds, high speeds, although we have certain maneuvers that are done, done at 400 knots. Uh, most of them are right around 400 and below for the four-plane formation. For the five-plane, uh, I mean, for the uh, two, five and six, they may be a little faster. Certain maneuvers, they'll be faster. And uh, again, correct me if I'm wrong. One of the one of the persons that critiques, isn't he also the announcer? Uh, the narrator focuses primarily on narration. Okay. Uh, very seldom will he uh, give a a, um, a a critique uh, because number one, he's in his first year. <laughs> hmm. He's going to eventually get in that formation. So. 
but he's not in a position to to really critique because he hadn't been trained necessarily. Uh, and plus, his focus is on narrating the air show, not necessarily critiquing the air show. And so, um, go ahead. Out of the, all the formations that you all fly, which do you think, in your opinion, was the most difficult? Uh, I, I, I have to break that down to certain maneuvers. Uh, the, the, the most difficult maneuver that I flew as a number three pilot was the left echelon roll. And what that was, was uh, the four aircraft stacked down on the left wing of the airplane and the number one pilot turning left into the formation and doing a roll. And that was probably the most demanding uh, maneuver to consistently fly uh, 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 on a on a day in a day basis, uh, we eventually eliminated that maneuver and, and brought in another because it was not really appreciated by the crowd. Hmm. <laughs> the, the, it was a lot of hard work for the demo pilots, but it was not necessary. It was like, oh, you know, hmm. one of those go sleeper maneuvers. But the skills required to execute it were just un- un- incredible. Uh, so that was the most difficult. One of the more exciting maneuvers was the vertical break. And this is where all four planes come up and they do a, a, a breakout maneuver and go in four different directions. It's like a bomb burst maneuver. Mm-hmm. And that's relatively easy maneuver to fly. Uh, but, you know, like I said, it was, it was uh, uh, always a pleasure to do maneuvers such as that. As I recall, too, when, when we were watching in Pensacola, don't you all land together? Uh, well, in the A-4s, I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> uh, now, uh, in the F-18, I think we typically will do uh, individual landings. There were concern about landing gear problems. Uh, we, at one time, when we first transition to the F-18, we were doing three-plane landings, and then we went to one-plane landings. But in the A-4, I was very fortunate to be one of the few pilots that have done six-plane takeoffs and six-plane landings. And uh, the reason for that is the airplane was small enough that you can consistently get six airplanes all on the same runway. There's nothing like having a landing or takeoff with metal all around you. You're depending on everybody executing at, you know, at the highest level to safely land and take the aircraft off. Very seldom that we take off all six planes, but we did it a couple of times. And uh, it was amazing. It's one of the things I can always look back and, and talk about <laughs> and, wow. and, and, and be here to talk about it. And, exactly. Well, I have one other thing I want to cover, and and that is I want to cover the next chapter. Sure. And, and, I mean, there are so many veterans that are out there, and we look at the challenges facing our country today. Um, We bring so much to the table and that the country really needs in terms of just the the skills and, and collaboration, all those things that make an organization, that make a country strong, a lot of our veterans bring back. So for me, my next chapter is is making sure that, that I have an opportunity 
to share the unique aspects of what I had a chance to do, being a part of not just the Blue Angels, but even Coca-Cola, UPS, all of these great organizations that all have these great values and that help, you know, form organizations that are cohesive, that work effectively together. And uh, and so my next chapter is, is to do more of that. And uh, my challenge is... is um, I'm asked to, to do talks a lot. Most people want, you know, I, if I wanted to talk every day, I probably could. <laughs> uh, but then I need to be able to sustain that. There are organizations that, uh, like law enforcement, I do a lot of work with law enforcement, uh, with schools, uh, with nonprofits, and with women-led organizations. Those organizations, I believe, form the pillars of a strong community. And so for law enforcement, I've talked to, like the Georgia Highway Patrol, I've talked to them several times, the uh, Atlanta Police Department, I've talked to them, the Atlanta Police Academy, one of the sheriff departments, I had a chance to talk to them. Uh, from the education standpoint, uh, I've done Georgia Tech and, um, and Morehouse ROTC units. Uh, let me get that real quick. Sorry about that. That was my alarm. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, but anyway, I, I that's what I I believe my next chapter. There's a reason why I survived. You know those 888 carrier landings, flying air shows, and flying maneuvers inverted. I, I wasn't survive all that to sit on the farm here and look. Although I'm on the farm right now, it's a wonderful <laughs> thing to do. Uh, but I believe it's about giving back and making a difference, making a meaningful difference in the lives of others. And if I can consistently do that, not only am I going to live my life better, but I think I will have an impact on others as well. So that is my next chapter. And I think all veterans and all of us, really, we have to be thinking, okay, what's next for us? What is it that I can do to make a positive difference in the lives of others. There are plenty of people that are going to throw stone stone at you and, and say, you know, this and that, but what are you doing positively to make a difference? And some of us can, can't do much. If you can't do much, start with your family and, uh, and make sure that, that they're taken care of and that they're living life to the fullest. And I, I believe that is, is my next chapter, and that's what I'm going to focus on. You know that uh, that's in a beautiful statement, and so many people overlook it. But uh, you know, we have a good friend, uh, Bruce Cowie, that uh, has written a book uh, called "Vietnam to Western Airlines," and which mm-hmm. turned into Delta Airlines. And uh, he was a pilot in Vietnam, and uh, just like you mentioned, in civilian life, you've been a pilot for large corporations, and it all i wouldn't say all but a lot of it came from the from your military background and experience and you went from one jet to another jet and uh, i think this is you're asking about what we can give back i'm i'm just a, a poor country boy from texas and i that's why i'm doing this show is and why i've got the station and i've got one flag up on the wall in front of me and one in the uh flag uh, position of, of 
the, the fold. And, uh, you know, I, I love the military. I love my sons in the military. And, you know... You know, one, one thing you just reminded me of, and that is, um, you know, I, I think one of the reasons why uh, uh, military people are, are more inclined to, not all of us, but a lot of us are more inclined to really appreciate the country more, not only because we serve, but we have an, an opportunity to go all over the world. And, I mean, I've been to Australia, to Dubai, to uh, South Korea, Japan, the Philippines, Thailand, places in Europe. And, you know, I, 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 all of that travel, at the end of the day, you know what? I always wanted to go home, <laughs> back to the USA. You know, I, I love traveling. I love going overseas and all getting these checks in the blocks and that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, there's no place better than than home. And so I think that is a big driver in, 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 in a lot of military is, hey, we see what's out there. We see what the opportunity. We also see how well the, the world is catching up, in some cases passing us. But, but there's no place greater than, than this country. And, uh, and if, if you uh, uh, appreciate that, then you want to make sure that for your kids and your grandkids, that they have that opportunity too, and uh, so that means there's a lot of work. But uh, I think we're resilient people, and we can make it happen. Well, I, uh, I'm like you, and and the from the standpoint, um, just like just like you were saying when you were flying with the Blue Angels, uh, the debriefings and um, the critiquing, so forth and so on, and I. I'll be the first to say that the United States isn't perfect, but I don't want anybody complaining or anybody criticizing the United States. We've got our faults, and we we work on them, and we try to change it. But for some of these people today that are saying some of the most outlandish things I've ever heard, um, you know, I, I don't like it, and uh, that's part of what the station is about. We counter those People that, uh, you know, I, I, I'm a real believer in been there, done that. And, you know, until you've walked in my Mexicans, then you have no right to tell me what to do. And uh, I personally feel like no one should be in office, particularly on a national basis, that hasn't served in the military, even if it's only for as a reservist, whatever they serve as, I don't care. But they should, they should have served. Uh, they don't know what it's like to have a bullet go past them to fly at 600 miles an hour or anything else. Um, so I, I well, feel like they know, should I, serve. I, 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 think, I think you're right. I think some, some service. Now, now, I think this, too. I think that if you serve, you can also serve in another capacity. There are so many opportunities served within the country, um, like, like law enforcement in a certain way, uh, community-type uh, services, nonprofits, uh, where you really get a chance to look at the real challenges facing people. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there are a lot of ways to serve, and I think a lot of us are focused on 
making that living and not living. And uh, and that's the key. The key is there, there are ways to serve because a lot of people may not want to go into military, but there are other ways you can serve. And I think I like the idea of a national service, whether it is military or, you know, whatever service they have, Peace Corps, you name it. Uh, I think that people, our young people especially, need to have that sense of service. And discipline. Uh, and yeah, but anyway, I, I'm I'm almost out of time. I know, but this has been wonderful. Oh well, we got a few minutes to go. And uh, yeah. have have I missed anything, or is there something that? What did it feel like to you? Because uh, the uh, Hall of Fame induction is coming up for the class of 2019 in a couple of weeks, November the second, down in Columbus, Georgia. What was it like for you to be invited and then inducted into the Hall of Fame? Well, it, it was, number one, it was uh, an honor to be uh, selected and to be recognized along with so many other uh, great military uh, officers and enlisted that have served from the state of Georgia. That's number one. I was just honored to be a part of an elite group of people like that. Um, and and the other piece is uh, I feel fortunate that I'm I'm relatively active and still can can help uh, in terms of spreading the word about not just the Hall of Fame but about all those other veterans that are from Georgia that, that may not necessarily be recognized as part of the Hall of Fame but have contributed so much to, to the country and to the state. And so uh, to be selected is, is certainly a, uh, a, a honor but I like to to thank all of those veterans out there from Georgia, not just from Georgia, but from all over, but especially from Georgia, that have uh, that have made this state and made this country what it is. You know, we mentioned um, Fat Albert, the backup uh, 130 for you all, and you know, it, I, I if I were a betting man, I would bet that you would be the first to say that the Blue Angels wouldn't be flying if it wasn't for the support. And uh, that the in uh, during the Vietnam era, the, the statement was it takes five men, five soldiers behind the one that's up front. Um, the, everything from supply up and down the gambit, um, payroll officer, everything. And... Uh, you know, I think, uh, like I said, if I were a betting person, I bet you you'd be the first one to say that uh, to keep those birds in the in the air, it takes Fat Albert and that crew working all the time for your best interest to keep those planes in the best condition possible. That that's exactly correct. I, I have this when I have a chance to do do a talk. I I have this phrase I use. It says, "No one of us is better than the rest of us." And the reason why I, I put that slide up when I have a chance to talk is is a lot of attention is focused on the, the six pilots that are flying the air show. But there's 120 people that actually make the team function. Wow. And so even though we may be the person in the flying the jets, uh, the support staff is vitally important for that whole team to to operate. 
so it's important to remember no one of us is better than the rest of us. And if we can sort of keep that, I mean, regardless of what you do, how much money you make or whatever, uh, you are as good as the, the value you bring to the table and, and, and making sure that, that not just you are taken care of, but those around you. That's a beautiful statement. I, I love that. I hope I can borrow it from you sometime. Um, and it's true. It's it's very it's it's true. No matter what size business you're in, what size ship you're on, or anything else, everything is teamwork. And uh, that no one person. I love that. That is fantastic. Um, Donnie, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on, and I hope that I can be presumptuous enough to say we'd sure like to have you back. Uh, okay, well, uh, we'll have to check on the schedule, and uh, I, I'm, I'm going to have to tell you that uh, being here on the farm and looking out at my trees grow as I'm having this, this, this uh, interview is probably an inspiring moment for me, so it probably brought out the best of me. Well, uh, I think you are the best, and uh, I, I think the uh, Blue Angels, and you know, it's it's not just the Blue Angels. What you all represent is is everybody that crawls in the cockpit to take care of us, to protect us as civilians, and the sacrifices you've made, and the sacrifices that that all military has made at one point or the other, giving up part of their family at one point or time, and um, protecting and securing our borders, securing our country, and making, and I'm, I'm just glad that we have the military back up to the strength that it should be. We should be the best in the world, and I think we are. And uh, I lived through the lot, the draft and the lottery. That was that's how old I am. And um, I think our service people today are absolutely the cream of the crop, without a question. They're the best in the world. They are, and uh, if if uh, if I'm uh, about to sign off, I have this this phrase I I love saying, and uh, one of one of them is uh, people used to ask me all the time. They said, uh, "Hey, hey," and my call sign when I was in the in, in the uh, Navy flying F-14 was big time. So they, hey, hey, big time. Uh, <laughs> uh, let, let me. What did it take to, for you to do what you do? And I said, well, you have to pay the cost to achieve your goals. But I, I learned that that you don't pay the cost to achieve your goals. You enjoy the journey. You pay the cost if you don't figure out how to figure out how to achieve your goals. You pay the cost if you don't figure out how to have a balance between your work life and your personal life. But you enjoy the cost that it takes for you to achieve a fulfilling life. It's a cost associated and you pay it. And the other thing I learned with, and this is leading up to my my next chapter, and that is you should always have something great to look forward to and the best is yet to come. With that, thank you much. You're welcome, and uh, thank you for being on with us, uh, Captain Cochran. 
with the Blue Angels. And uh, we're going to have Donnie back on in the very near future. Thank you, sir. We're out of time. We're going to put the plug in the jug and move on. All right, you bet. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.